0: This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. There's an old campaign ad that I love for its sheer hyperbole. You may have seen it on YouTube, or if you were alive and watching television on September 7th, 1964. Maybe you saw it on live broadcast. It's the Daisy ad for President Lyndon Johnson in his re-election campaign against Barry Goldwater. Three,
1: two...
2: Wow
1: These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live, or to go into the dark. We must either love each other, or we must die.
0: That's right. Lyndon Johnson was basically saying that if you didn't vote for him, we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust. Campaign ads these days are just boring milk toast by comparison. The other reason I like this old Daisy ad is that first line from LBJ. These are the stakes. I, for one, am of the opinion that more politicians should be clear and transparent about the stakes in their race. Why does it matter? What'll actually change if they win, or if the other guy wins? This week on Bold Dominion, we're asking that question about Virginia's gubernatorial election. What are the stakes between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin.
1: One of the things that you're seeing in the campaign is is not so much really hard debate about the economy or the environment. What you're really seeing is culture war issues. That's what Youngkin is trying to do to drive a wedge into McAuliffe's support.
0: That's Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska. In the second half of today's show, he and I hash out the actual issue differences and stakes between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin, from energy and the economy to abortion rights and education. But first, we turn to Virginia Mercury columnist Bob Lewis. He's a veteran journalist who's covered Virginia state government for the Associated Press for nearly 30 years. He recently wrote about the governor's race and what looks like less enthusiasm among Democratic voters this year. And not necessarily because of this year's candidates in Virginia, but because of how much our state elections have been lumped in with national politics. So we've got the gubernatorial election has technically already started because early voting started a few weeks ago. Uh, Paint a picture for me of where things stand in the race between Republican Glenn Youngkin and Democrat Terry McAuliffe.
2: Well, the data tell a story of a very close race, a statistically tied race. The two polls that came out last week uh, showed it a, a dead heat within the margins of error. Uh, Also, very telling and troubling signals for Camp McAuliffe would be that Youngkin has an edge among independents and is is ahead in exurban areas, particularly Prince William County, which has been integral to Democratic statewide victories since 2005. So uh, there may be an enthusiasm gap in the Republicans' favor.
0: So, yeah, Bob, I wanted to ask what some of those reasons were. You just wrote a a column in the Virginia Mercury this week about that enthusiasm gap and suggested that the uh, Trump effect or relative lack of a Trump effect this time around may be part of the issue. It's taken some of the wind out of the Democratic sails.
2: Yes, that is a part of the issue. Um, As as the column says, it's really hard to rouse your village when you don't have a a grindle to vanquish. And without uh, Trump in the White House creating headlines every day uh, that alarmed and angered uh, Virginia's moderate, largely suburban electorate, it's a little hard to get those Democrats uh, keyed up again this year the way they were last year when they turned out in record numbers, uh, you, you can look at the election results over the Trump years. Anybody with an R beside his name paid the price for Trump. Uh, even Ed Gillespie, who is about as uh, moderate and um, uh, well-liked on both sides of the aisle as a Washington insider as anybody, um, got trounced by uh, Ralph Northam, because he was the Republican, and as a Republican, he had to uh, bear the albatross of, of Donald Trump. Well, with Trump gone, it's a little hard to motivate those those voters. And there there's another reason, too. It's not just who's out of the White House, it's who's in. And Biden is not inspiring a lot of confidence, nor are the Democrats in Congress, with the way they've been acquitting themselves this summer. You know, there's the debacle in uh, Afghanistan with the withdrawal there and the Taliban's overnight takeover. There's the uh, uh, less than stellar handling of the COVID resurgence. Um, and then you look at Congress and you see the utter inability to enact a basic infrastructure ref- uh, funding bill. And then you look two weeks into the future And unless something happens um, and the debt ceiling gets raised, we're going to have a financial catastrophe on our hands, comparable to what happened in 2008. So, you know, the Democrats are not having a good season this year, and it's it's, uh, easy to understand why they're not clamoring to get to the polls.
0: It's it's interesting, and this is something that I know exists in in politics in general. Is that that and lately, I don't know if it's always been this way, but lately, for the last generation, everything is influenced by what's going on in the national. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's very that's true. It's very strange to hear you talking about like the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it's like why would that have any impact at all? on who's gonna manage Virginia's unemployment system yeah. or who's gonna manage, you know, coastal uh, rehabilitation,
2: you know, these kinds of things, <laughs> but it does. Yeah, you, you put your finger on it. Uh, we've really nationalized races in Virginia. Um, I mean, there's always been something of a nexus to national issues because, you know, let's face it, they're right across the Potomac, uh, and we're very dependent on uh, federal spending for employment in Virginia. If you look back, I I wrote a column about this a couple of weeks ago in the Mercury as well uh, about how we've nationalized races and how, um, you know, it seems like such a long time ago that Jim Gilmore's no car tax pledge or George Allen's abolished parole pledge carried the day. Um, And and we do. We seem to uh, find our villains uh, and make them our proxies uh, in Washington.
0: So if Virginia is a proxy battle this year, what are the stakes? Well, the stakes
2: are um, the Republicans uh, clawing back from utter irrelevance now. It's, it's interesting that uh, over the past five years uh, with Trump in the White House, the Republicans have been shut out of power in any meaningful institution of Virginia state at the state or federal level. For the first time since 1969, that that came true in the 2019 election when the Democrats took over the House of Delegates, and that left Virginia with the governor's office, the lieutenant governor's office, the attorney general's office, both houses of the state legislature, both U.S. senators, and a majority of the U.S. House seats. And that had not happened since 1969 when the the last time Democrats controlled everything and and Democrats had controlled everything since Reconstruction. But in 69, a guy named Linwood Holton kicked down the door uh, after Nixon um, came in the year before with his Southern strategy and uh, Virginia uh, became a two-party state from that point on. But because of Trump, uh, Republicans were chased from every one of those institutions of uh, government. And this year they have a chance to uh, get back. And, you know, um, Virginia has never, we're portrayed as a blue state, but, you know, Virginia has never been comfortable putting all of its eggs in one basket. And it's a moderate state. And if it perceives that the pendulum has swung too far to the left, then voters are going to correct. And You know, the the, the Republicans were very effective last year on issues of law and order, um, immigration, and using the bloody shirt and, you know, winning actually a lot of congressional seats. Uh, Joe Biden won the race and and beat Trump. But if you look at uh, what happened elsewhere, Democrats lost seats in the House of Representatives. Democrats um, barely, barely pulled to a a 50-50 tie in the Senate when they were expected to almost win a a veto-proof or filibuster-proof majority. And they did not pick up a single state legislature. So um, the issues are not new and they're not foreign. Uh, It's just that in Virginia this year, I think they're getting a whole new um, uh, a whole new test run. I know with the the
0: Trump administration, I'm I'm you know acquainted with a number of progressive activists, and they worried that that you know once Trump was out of office, a lot of these kind of moderate and liberal occasional voters would just go to brunch and forget about voting, and mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. kind of seems like that might be happening.
2: Yeah, I think they disengaged a little bit after um, uh, that. that- Herculean effort last year to uh, turn out the vote and get Trump out of office. It wasn't so much to get Biden in office as to get Trump out of office. And now, um, even though there are alarm bells going off everywhere, uh, I think there may be something to that in that voters are sort of taking a breath and saying, we're we're safe for the time being. Um But you know, the Federalist system is alive and well, and local and state elections matter. And um, you know if you don't believe that, look at Texas and the abortion law that went into effect there at the start of last month. Uh, your life can change dramatically um, based on state and local elections. Actually, those are governments that reach out and touch you far more often and profoundly than the federal system does. So we're seeing exactly that. I don't think that that's democratic voters are disengaged a little bit. And I think uh, if McAuliffe intends to reactivate them, he's gotta find something that, that does it. Uh, if you saw the debate last week, uh, he used Trump's name 14 times to try to link him to Youngkin, you know? If it isn't working after all of that, it's probably not going to work. He may have to find a new trick. There's time for Youngkin to implode. And he's got to walk a very tight, tight tightrope between alienating the MAGA crowd and not scaring away suburbanites. If
0: Youngkin gets elected four years down the road, what does Virginia look like? Versus if McAuliffe gets elected four years down the road, what's Virginia look like?
2: Well, it's not just... McAuliffe or Yunkin. There's also an election uh, in one month for 100 seats in the House of Delegates. And that, that's, that's very important. If that swings toward the Republicans and Yunkin wins the governor's office, then he has some ability to probably pass some legislation and maybe roll back some things that the Democrats have achieved over the past few years. What comes to mind? uh, Repeal of the death penalty, the uh, uh, election reforms that uh, the Democrats have made to make voting easier. I could see all of those coming back. Also, uh, I mean, he would owe it to his constituency to try to tighten up uh, uh, restrictions on abortion. So, I mean, the, the the issues sort of write themselves. They're playing out in front of us in this campaign. They're telling you what they're going to do. The, not just the governor's race, but the, the House races also deserve careful uh, attention because that's going to have a lot of say in, in where the state goes over the next two years. Uh, my colleague at the um, Mercury, Ned Oliver, has a great column this morning on that very issue, on the House uh, races, and how um, this might be a change here. What, uh, looking
0: ahead in the, in the next month as this all unfolds, what do you see as the key things that we should watch?
2: Yeah, watch for an October surprise. Um, you know, if McAuliffe sees his poll numbers are sliding, he's gonna pull something out of the, out of the bag, probably. Yeah, watch for a yunk and stumble. The, the Trump question is not going to go away. It's not one he can avoid. You know, he, he's constantly uh, at risk of that. And he's been recorded once secretly making uh, uh, very damaging comments about abortion. You know, does something else like that surface? I think a lot of the factors right now are baked in. People are voting. I think it's, it's got to be something pretty substantial if it changes the dynamics of the race at this point.
0: Bob Lewis is a columnist at Virginia Mercury. Stick around. In the second half of this episode today, we've got Peter Glaska explaining the specific issues at stake in this year's gubernatorial race. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show, and then subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served Mm -hmm. up. And while you're there, hey, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We like those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music and community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, a moment ago, Bob Lewis explained how Virginia's state elections are being driven, at least in part, by the national political picture, and how the outcome will send signals to our national political leaders. But Virginia elections also matter to Virginians, because of what will actually happen here. In the second half of today's episode, we drill down on the issues and stakes at play in the gubernatorial race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska joins us. Where does Virginia go if McAuliffe gets elected versus if Youngkin gets elected? Um, let's start with uh, sort of energy and the environment.
1: Well, I think the the issue there is that, um, you know, Youngkin wants to do away with the Clean Economy Act, which uh, would force away, you know, promote and to some extent force a, a move to renewable energy such as offshore wind and solar. And Youngkin and doesn't want that. He wants to keep on going with gas and perhaps nukes and everything else. That's one thing. Uh, McAuliffe has gotten criticism, considerable criticism, from the green movement for supporting the both the mountain valley and the Atlantic coastline uh, natural gas pipelines. That the latter one was canceled by Dominion and its partners. But in any of that, that's the kind of the thing you want to do because you know you, you you've made a lot of progress in you know Virginia joining the regional uh, you know gas initiative project at Reggie to um, you know. Bring down, um, you know, carbon dioxide emissions, and also something that attacks on on cars, and I think Yunkin would really turn it around if he did, and um, so that's that's one area.
0: We have two candidates that both claim they're the candidate for, you know,
1: the best economy Virginia can have. Who's right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, the thing is about it is it's just sort of strange because Republicans are really trying hard to paint McAuliffe as a slacker on jobs, which he isn't. I mean, he wasn't as great as he says he is, but he, you know, he's not. Youngkin, they're trying to pretend that the business climate in Virginia is very bad. It's been bad ever since the Dems have been in power. And that's kind of hard to square because, you know, CNBC in July rated Virginia as the best state in the union for business. And if you look at the overall unemployment rates in Virginia, I think they reached a high of around five-plus points in, in March. Now they're down around 4.1. So, I mean, that's pretty strong. Youngkin's idea is that other states like North Carolina and other ones to the south of us are stronger at jobs creation. And that's also kind of a problem because a lot of our jobs are federal jobs. And that it really has to do with what goes on in Congress as far as jobs creation, and that makes Virginia in many ways resilient and strong. So it's really not clear where Youngkin wants to, you know, first off, number one is the economy that bad. I don't know. And secondly, what's he going to do about it, which he really hasn't said.
0: What happens to Virginia's
1: economy if Glenn Youngkin gets elected? Well, first off, to be honest with you, I don't think it's going to go into hell in a handbasket. I, I think it's too strong for that. And as you mentioned, the defense, uh, federal spending is strong enough that there's not a whole lot that Youngkin can do about it. And he does have a business background. He was co-CEO of the Carlisle Group, which is a, a major private equity company in um, D.C. And so you know, he comes across as sort of businessy. But then again, so does Terry McAuliffe. Uh, so I don't know. I, 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 just, don't, I just think you're going to see a lot of turns to lessen regulation, to do what the business community wants more.
0: Peter, I also wanted to ask about economic policies that affect workers. You know, we we've seen a minimum wage hike, we've seen a number of other sort of pro-worker policies, um, and and even some talk, although nothing's passed, about maybe repealing right to work uh, laws that prevent <clears throat> uh, unionization. Um, right. What what would happen to these kind of pro-worker policies under a McAuliffe versus a Yunkin?
1: Well, um, McAuliffe, first off, he kind of just weaves and dodges on this issue too. Because especially right to work, um, which is what you know goes back more than a half a century or even longer than that, is a a ruse to draw in like northern textile mills saying, oh, we have a docile labor force and not going to give you any back talk." And um, you know, having lived in the north and Midwest and some fairly pro-union kind of places, I mean, you just realized how how unique that that kind of thought is, and so. The trouble is, is that Terry McAuliffe um, has said in the past he would support repealing right to work, but he backed off on the second debate, pretty much saying, well, it's not going to pass the legislature anyway. And Youngkin, of course, would, would, you don't want to keep it. And um, that's pretty much it. And there are other things, too, about, as you mentioned, that could be affected, such as more, more liberal policies about time off, uh, minimum wage rising. I mean, you know, the Youngkin would probably seems to have this idea, typical, you know, kind of fiscal conservative idea that, you know, if you work hard enough, you, you'll get ahead, you know, and you know, you just do a better job and you'll get more money. You don't need a guaranteed wage, which is kind of like whoa, you know. So that you're right. I mean, if if Youngkin wins, that's going to be stymied. That whole movement towards a, a more modern, you know, worker relationship. The other problem with Youngkin is is the Trump factor is that. Trump is, is, you know, wanting to endorse him, endorses him and, you know, praises him at the same time um, while trying to accept that support. Yunkin is also trying to steer away from it, which is really kind of peculiar.
0: Well, we've talked about this kind of bifurcated voting block in Virginia, how you've got a, a base that is very Trumpist and you've got a lot of other voters who are suburban and don't like Trump. And Yunkin has to mm-hmm. somehow thread this needle or, or I don't know, latch, yeah. lash the two together. Yeah. And I don't know how it's going to work.
1: Well, I think that's the, one of the things that you're seeing in the, um, the campaign is, is not so much really hard debate about the economy or the environment. We're really seeing as culture war issues. And that's that's what Youngkin is trying to do to drive a wedge into McAuliffe's support. There's a little bit of a list here. Let me go through it real quick. Um, first off, one thing is there's been a real backlash uh, against uh, mandated COVID vaccines. McAuliffe wants them. Junkin kind of skips around and saying, well, I strongly recommend that people get it, but it's not mandatory. He's trying to have it once again, both ways. You know, he, there's the big libertarian groups out there. Uh, many of them are in the suburbs, uh, really don't like the idea of vaccines. They don't want to be given them or told they have to have them. And yet their kids have to have them go to school or at least other vaccines for other diseases. So this is just another case of kind of dodging the issue, which kind of makes you wonder where, where he's really going with this.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: of course, I, I know other issues in what we could call culture wars, but really it's about health policy and, and human services policy and education policy. Sure. Uh, right. Critical race theory, it's just the new fear uh, stoker on on the right.
1: Well, I, I agree. And that's the thing is that it sort of came up in the Trump, the, in the latter days of the Trump administration. Uh, very few pe- people had really heard of it much before. But anyway, that became a big issue. And um You know, basically, Virginia schools, public schools, do not teach anything related to critical race theory. It's just sort of amazing. So they're making up an issue that doesn't really exist. And yet, you know, Youngkin said that the first thing he's going to do is uh, get rid of some of the top education department people and make sure that CRT is never going to be taught. Well, who says it is? You know, that's kind of the issue. You go on to other issues, too, like abortion and like um book censorship
0: Mm -hmm. i i do want to also definitely touch on abortion because that is uh, an important you know women's health issue uh that that, that many people care passionately about around the state what would happen in virginia with the young administration i mean would we end up with a, a texas style bill here
1: you could have that you could have that but there was talk about you know sort of putting in the virginia constitution the state constitution wording that would say that that upholds Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision back in the 70s that, you know, really changed and 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 loosened, you know, abortion, made it more available for women. And um, so Youngkin could very much, of course, that would be over. But um, but he could go back and try to do some kind of laws, you know, say, Texas or maybe Florida, because, I mean, you know, once again, he's kind of in that group in many ways, even though he pretends he's not. And uh, McAuliffe says, you know, Hey, you know, the law is the law and, um, you know, restricting it to six weeks or, you know, it's just really kind of nothing. It's kind of stupid. That's mm-hmm. what he believes. Um, but one of the, one other thing I'd like to bring up before we drop just yeah. on the cultural war things, there's another thing that's really become really a hot topic, which is very much so in, in, it's becoming more so in the suburban areas that are important to McAuliffe is the idea of book censorship. Mm. Because in, in uh, recently, the there uh, some parents raised hell in, in Fairfax because a couple books were really fairly sexually explicit, and um, so there you know parents want to be able to. There was a bill bill passed when McAuliffe was uh, governor that would let parents um, oversee and refuse right to refuse to have your kids reading assigned literature, and McAuliffe vetoed that bill. And that's another area. If Yunkin comes in, you know the bill will good go forward. And that's really what another problem that you're going to get into is the the heart and soul of education, it sort of links up with critical race theory, where you're not supposed to discuss what racism is. Anyway, that's kind of scary.
0: Yeah, there is a lot there though about kind of education policy sometimes gets sidelined as an issue, but it really is the long game. It's it's what Virginians are taught and and think in the next generation and two generations ahead.
1: Uh, I really, there's this big conspiracy theory going around on the right wing blogs now that there's a sort of the progressives and socialists um, are really pushing their agenda as far as educating kids and spoiling their minds and thinking, which is kind of crazy, I think, but in any event, uh, so there, you know, this is what it's really being joined as. And of course, this would be great for Yankin because it's a wedge issue. And that way he could he could possibly drive voters in the suburbs away from McAuliffe.
0: I feel like as I watch this race, Peter, that the, the McAuliffe campaign is is sort of like holding the line on on what's already been been done. You know, it's right. like, hey, the Democrats have been doing a good job. I was governor before with the Republicans. I'm going to do even better with a mm-hmm. Democratic majority, you know, yeah. um, kind of a, a not exactly playing offense, sort of, you know, we're just going to kind of keep it going on this on this better path. Um, Mm -hmm. the Yunkin campaign is saying everything that's changing needs to stop changing, and here's how you know, like like we're we're gonna stop it. We're just gonna stop it, and and I don't necessarily have details, but (laughs) um, what I mean, paint a picture for me of what Virginia looks like in a year, two years, three years with the McAuliffe administration, and then paint that picture with the Yunkin administration.
1: Well, assuming McAuliffe wins and assuming that the Democrats keep the House of Delegates, you're just going to see more of the more of the same building on the whole idea of of, of making progress. You see more of the same of McAuliffe, more of the same of the smooth politician pro. As far as Yunkin going in and assuming the Republicans, say, win the House for some reason, and that they perhaps the Senate, too, later next year, then you're going to really see a lot of changes and, and, and uh, you know, Going backwards to many cases, the one thing you don't know about Yunkin, though, is that the previous Republican governors had been pretty pretty much predictable. Like Bob McDonald, for example, had been, you know, Attorney General, I believe, and he's also been, you know, a prosecutor. That's the more traditional Virginia way going up. But you really don't know with um, Yunkin because of his his background in you know global private equity and where he's really coming from. He has no no political experience whatsoever.
0: You know, there's the, this there's a long playbook uh, for Republican candidates of using fear-based issues, because when people feel feel fear, <laughs> they're going to go to this candidate that's telling them they only can provide the security. Right. How much is McAuliffe able to push a, a different vision of, like, a, a Virginia that's safe and secure and has sort of shared prosperity for everybody? I, I don't know if I'm getting that clear vision from him.
1: No, you're not. And um, I thought he did okay in the second debate. Um, you know, he was more in control. And um, even though the, the two men really went after each other, maybe excessively. But, um, you know, the whole thing is is that one of the problems with McAllath is he hasn't really – you're right. He wants to stay the democratic course. But does there be any, any truly new ideas? I don't know. You know? Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area.
0: Thanks to him and also to Virginia Mercury columnist Bob Lewis for joining us this week. And thanks also to our editor this week, Katherine Hansen, doing a bang-up job as always. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.